For if you figure a way to live without serving a master, any master, then let the rest of us know, will you? For you be the first person in the history of the world. This isn't playtime. This is serious business. Well, the play must go on, I believe. I'm always home. I'm on good. I've been thinking a lot about dying lately. I'm trying to do good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to That's That, a Philip Seymour Hoffman retrospective. I'm your host, Timothy Mark Davis, and today we are talking about The Master, the 2012 film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. This is the first episode of That's That, so thank you for joining us today. I hope you were able to watch the film on Netflix if you haven't seen it already, or if you have seen it and want to rewatch it, which I would highly recommend at all times. You could have done that as well. My guest today is the one and only Andrew Paul Davis. Andrew, how you doing? I'm wonderful. Hello, listeners. Hello, world. Hello, world. Here we are on the Depotosphere. You think anyone has said that word before? I don't think so, because it sounds really stupid. <laughs> okay. The Potosphere. Okay. The Potosphere. Yeah, I'm just, I'm inventing a new word here. So the master, we're not going to waste your time with BS introductions, at least today. Maybe another day we will, but Andrew and I have places to be. We have lives to live. We have Barely. Slack messages to respond to. Um, but the master, my goodness. Uh, the re- well, I, guess, I guess the way that I want to frame this is that this movie is my favorite. This is this might be my favorite movie of all time. And and it's I'm pretty sure we'll see how we'll see what happens 53 weeks from now, 55 weeks from now. But I'm pretty sure it's my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. And obviously we'll get into why that is during uh, this episode. But I wanted to start with it, first of all, because it's called The Master and I consider PSH a master, if not the master of acting. Um, the reason we're doing this podcast is because I love him and have loved him for many years. I have a, an obsession. If you know anything about me, you know that. Uh, so we're starting with this because it's my favorite performance. I think that might change because it's Paul Thomas Anderson, who is, is he your favorite film director, Andrew? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think he's my favorite as well. Like we both, we both share a, a huge love for PTA and Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is a beautiful thing because they have five collaborations together uh, across many films that are just wonderful, wonderful films. The Master was the, I believe, fifth and final collaboration between PTA and and I'm just going to call him Phil during this year. I'm just sorry, everyone. I'm just going to be calling him Phil throughout this podcast. I can't help myself. Uh, but Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love. The master is that all of them? Did I forget one? Yes, and Hard Eight was his best one, <laughs> from, from my perspective. Fun, 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 fun. Hey, old timer, <laughs> that laugh, that legendary Phil laugh, which I'm sure uh, we will hear more of in the coming days. But let's let's jump into the master. So this is the log line from IMDb: A naval veteran, Freddie Quell, played by Walking Phoenix arrives home from war unsettled and uncertain of his future until he is tantalized by the cause and its charismatic leader, Lancaster Dodd, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. 
And this is my addition. The film also stars Amy Adams as Lancaster Dodd's wife and potential cause mastermind. Andrew, do you think the IMDb logline is accurate? Um, I think it's pretty good. I you, you saying it just reminded me that when we watched it last night, I looked at the Netflix logline, which is different from IMDb, and makes oh. me suspicious that Paul probably had a hand in creating that original IMDb logline. You know, that's probably what Goulardi and unfortunately the Weinstein Company chiseled together to sell yes. the movie at that time or to summarize it. But on Netflix, yes. it says a heavy drinking loner finds some semblance of a family when he stumbles onto the ship of Lancaster Dodd, the charismatic leader of a new quote religion. It's like, it seems like a harsher judgier log line yeah. made by Netflix to yep. get more plays and not, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, this too, from, co-storing Pompano Boy, my second mm-hmm. film, but it's, it is hard to make a log line for a film. You feel like you're really, hard. really like um, breaking your characters down to half a dimension. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's inherently reductionistic. Yeah. Um, especially with, especially with a film as complex as the master is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the honestly the best movies can barely even have a log line like 2001 space yeah. odyssey tree of life you know like how do you, i yeah. don't know it's almost yeah it's almost like at some point the log lines for movies like that just becomes a meditation on human existence yeah exactly it's like you cannot sell that at all nobody wants to watch a movie with that log line probably unless you're us um or other uh people who like those types of movies but yeah you you have to kind of figure out it's a pitch. A log line is a pitch. So that's mm-hmm. that's that's fascinating, though. That Netflix definitely goes for the the salesier angle on that. So yeah, if, I think uh, Paul would yeah. not like upsetting Tom Cruise further by putting religion in quotes in a log no, line. So <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah, I was I was thinking about that. I was watching some some Phil interviews where he's talking about the master and and talks about he mentions how you know it's got nothing to do with scientology we debunked that even though people keep saying that which i honestly i'm a little skeptical of how the uh the the thickness of the connection between the cause and scientology i don't think it really matters for it to be connected or not in terms of viewing the movie but i i was just like obsessed with the idea of did tom cruise get mad at pta when this movie came out like what happened to their relationship? Did something happen? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, PTA and, and for those you know, just more trivia here, Magnolia, which is another Phil Philip Seymour Hoffman and and Paul Thomas Anderson collaboration, also stars Tom Cruise in what I think is like his best work. He's brilliant in that movie. Yeah. But a little bit more background about this film. So as we said, it was written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, PTA for short, who will come up multiple times throughout this podcast. Uh, it's really, he, he is really the most significant collaboration in Phil's career. You know, Phil had other other directors who he worked with more than once. Uh, Bennett Miller comes to mind, Capote and Moneyball. Um, there's got to be more. I mean, obviously the Hunger Games thing. I don't know if that counts. But really, I mean, PTA is the quintessential collaboration and their friendship is well known. They became great friends. And as I mentioned before, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and then The Master. 
Uh, the Master was also nominated for three Oscars, three Golden Globes, and three BAFTAs. Do you know what those were for, Andrew? Um, I don't off the top of my head, actually. Oh, yes, you do. It's for the actors. Oh, oh, wait. I like totally zoned out for a second. Were you talking about the Oscars? <laughs> I said it's also been nominated for three Oscars, three Golden Globes, and three BAFTAs. You, you said that you ended with BAFTAs, and I was like, I don't know what the BAFTAs were. No one knows what the BAFTAs are. <laughs> but yeah, the, at the Oscars, they only liked the actors, apparently. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which, which I feel like, yeah, that's kind of a that's kind of a PTA thing, which we can get into a little bit. But it was actually nominated for four BAFTAs. Just to correct that that fact, the fourth BAFTA was a was a screenplay because the Brits understand great writing and Americans <laughs> yeah, do not. Yeah. yeah, Americans only like crazed characters, which is why they give nominees to actors who really get into it. <laughs> of our obsession with method acting it's just it's sick it's sick it's a joke it's it's the joker it's, it's the joker yeah you either have to do that or eat real animal organs in the revenant re- 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 yep. or have like a really good hunchback like in the master yes, <laughs> yes. Then, then you'll get your nom so so let's let's pause there really quick though because um Nominated, as we said, nominated for three Oscars. You know, that that's the big one around here anyways. All for the actors, nothing for Paul uh, specifically. What is, the, what is the deal? Give me some of your PTA knowledge. And I, and I do think it's a positive. He writes such strong characters. Yes? Yes. I was even thinking during the watching it yesterday when Laura Dern's in that scene with him during the what do you want scene. Yes. That's like her best acting too. Yeah. <laughs> like her listening. She's she's awesome. Yep. And that's in, in this movie. It's just like uh I don't know. It's it's just proof that like the more you, you you create characters that make the most sense and have the most like just easy to see intentions from an actor's viewpoint. Yeah. Then and and like not making them say stupid things, like not making them make expositional stretches to service yep. the story or the audience, but um, to have characters crafted that are grounded in reality and um, not uh, trying to purport screenwriting artifice. Um, that that's yeah. where people can do their best work. There's there's some magic there. Yeah, for sure. And it's like they they have this grounding in things that are essentially human, um, which we'll get into, you know, these sort of polar opposites of, of Freddy and Lancaster Dodd. Like these things that these desires or like being against desires that feel so familiar to the uh, empathetic watcher, I think, but mm-hmm. also there's such eccentric characters, which is also so fun to play for an actor. It gives an actor so much opportunity to show off is the wrong word, but like flex or like show, just go places that maybe a more standard uh, stereotype or, or drawing of a character would not allow an actor to go. Yeah. Or express, you know, just at least express and yes. make subtle artistic statements because there's, mm-hmm room to do that they're they're not just naturalistic right 
characters out at lunch, although they do have some lunch sometimes in this movie. Yes, they do. <laughs> Time for lunch. Not you, Freddy. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Love it. So this here's something that I that I want to I want to pick your brain on as well because I remember when it came out we talked about it and and we've talked about these things as as it's happened more, but I want to know what kind of context or history you have for the fact that I I read something and tell and tell me if you know of um, you know verify this for me this was the first movie filmed in 65 millimeter and then projected in 70 millimeter in select theaters since Kenneth Branagh's 1996 Hamlet. Mm. Are you familiar with that factoid or did you, or did you at least know that like no one was doing 70 millimeter for a while until yes. this happened? Yeah. Do you, I remember us having conversations about this before and I should have asked you about it earlier, but do you remember, do you have any context for like why Paul did this? And then, you know, directors after him were doing it as well. Um, I mean, I know the guy watches Turner classic movies every day. Like he, <laughs> he has it on the kitchen in the morning every day. Um, yeah. he, he loves movies from the era that this movie is set in. Yeah. Um, and which is the fifties, yeah. early fifties. Yeah. And there was, um, yeah, a lot of like larger than life type of movies, you know, that came out between in the fifties and early sixties, like Lawrence of Arabia and mm-hmm. um, these, these movies that were shot that way. Yeah. Um, and I think he, he wanted to have an additional access point to the era and the, the mood he was going for. Can you explain like the, the technology, like what does that even, what does it even mean that it was filmed in 65 millimeter and projected in 70 millimeter? I, I don't even understand what that means. What does that mean? Um, I, I'm not sure if I have like a 100% accurate definition, but I think that the two different ways is like the camera sensor is larger. Um, and yeah. the sensor does not mean resolution, but if you, if you say you have a DSLR and you take off the lens, that little kind of like mirror, um, that zone is very big on a 65 millimeter or an IMAX camera. Mm. Um, and what that does is your, lenses become wider. So it's like to get a 50 millimeter, you start using like to get a medium shot, you need to, um, use a tighter lens. So that's just kind of like a, a weird thing about it. Um, and, um, you know, in cameras today, a lot of them are around super 35, um, 35 millimeter, which is, um, what a lot of things are shot on. And, um, I think for for Pompano Boy, like that was around the sensor size that we used. Mm-hmm. And um, another thing that the large sensor does is it makes your depth of field even shallower. So if you, if you want deeper depth of field, you know, so that more is in focus, you have to, uh, you know, a- adjust for it further. It kind of like creates some extremities um, mm-hmm. that are helpful. Um, Besides the depth of field, that's like literal light that you're letting in. That's part of what's happening when you change the depth of field. Um, so for Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 film, like they used um, the lenses with the smallest called f-stops or large. Sometimes I get confused. It's like small or large when it's like a smaller number, but it, the lens is yeah. literally wide open at like around. 0.9 or something like that, which is very small 
numerically um, because they shot that movie with candlelight. So they were trying to let as much light in as possible. So there's there's right. a lot of like technical factors like that, but on a resolution base, it's it's similar to like shooting in 1080 versus 4K. Um, a reel of 65 millimeter film is literally like twice, three times as large or something as as 35 millimeter. And same with 16 or 8 millimeter. It sort of gives you this larger than life effect and yeah. um, detailed like film grain. Some of these, some of the shots in this movie are just like. I mean, gorgeous, of course, is one of the words, but there's not a word. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's so much color, but not in a way that looks like it was edited in or something. You know what I mean? Like, it looks like just all of this vibrance is somehow being captured. Is that the effect of, I mean, and it's not like we're watching it being presented at, at 70 millimeter or whatever, but even yeah, what the... seen on Netflix is or on a Blu-ray there's something different. Yeah. Yeah. The, the movie was not color graded. <laughs> um, I think the, the film was taken straight into um, a process that affected the film directly, you know, and not. Are you serious? Oh my yep. gosh. I didn't yeah. There, there wasn't digital color grading happening. Um, yeah. Wow. That is so, that's fascinating. Um, so good. Yeah. So a little bit of the, the tech stuff behind the film, which I think is, is fascinating a little bit about the collaboration. Um, the other thing to mention is that this was Philip Seymour Hoffman's fourth and final Oscar nomination. The three before that being leading actor for Capote, which he won. And then he also received supporting actor nominations for doubt and Charlie Wilson's war. Um, let's get a little bit into Phil's performance. I want to know, what do you, it's like, where do you even start? It's like, I want to just keep talking about him before getting too specific into the movie. But I think like the more specific we get with each role, we'll sort of hit on those universal aspects of his acting. What do you think this performance reveals about humanity? Um, Something it reveals is that we all exist in circles and these circles overlap where there are men who control a room and they shake hands a certain way, oh. you know, just that, oh. like when yes. they walk in, they become the sun, yes. you know, you, you feel that when he's walking down the aisle, great day, great day. And he's getting ready yes. for the wedding. He has to be the one who does his daughter's wedding. This is a guy who, um, at his daughter's wedding reception, even during his speech, makes it significantly more about his authorial prowess and yep. affinity for metaphor than wrestle the dragon to, wrestle. And the, turning it into a philosophy of marriage. That's very abstract as yep. opposed to like sharing stories about his daughter as a five-year-old. <laughs> well, um, I, That monologue starts with like marriage was boring before the cause or marriage yes. was horrible before the cause. It's like, yep. <laughs> He is not shy about his his thesis. Yep. Yep. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind is just like mm-hmm. these kinds of men specifically yeah. are um, – we, we see them often. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Well, and I, and I think it's also – you know, I, I one, one of the reasons that I put this performance – 
at the top and it's like when you and I, you and I have talked about this for years where it's, we, we call it like, this is Phil at the peak of his powers, you know, which is crazy because it's a couple years before he died. Um, and we haven't even talked about his death. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's listening to this and was like, what movies has this guy done recently? Um, oh, now I'm just sad, but yeah, Phil, February Phil's 2nd, <laughs> Phil's dead. February 2nd, 2014, Philip Seymour Hoffman died um, of an apparent drug overdose which this is just so sad and we'll and we'll get into this as we talk about more of his work because he plays many of these kind of tortured characters and i think he carried a lot of that in in himself unfortunately um very briefly where were you when you found out i was oh gosh this is devastating um, I was I was here. I was in Fort Lauderdale. I was on Federal Highway, of course. Where else would I be? I was in my car, and uh, I was at a red light, and I saw a text from uh, Samantha. She sent me an article, or or sent me, or she might have called me actually and been like, "Tim, where are you? Are you okay?" And she told me, and it was just like. Yeah, it's just like surreal. It was also it, it was also shocking because a year before that, the story broke about him checking into rehab, and I remember seeing that playing on the news at 580, which is our parents' house, and Dad being like, "He's that guy's gonna he's gonna he's gonna kill himself. Like he's gonna die of a drug overdose," and I got so mad at him for saying that. I was like, "He's going to rehab. Shut up." You know, and then, so I guess what I'm saying is it's dad's fault, (laughs) (laughs) No, but, but a year later, yeah, he, he died and, um, I've never, yeah, I don't think I've ever really gotten over it. You know, I'm, I still become, what's the, what's the, verklempt, verklempt, what's that word? Verklempt. I don't know what I'm talking about. I know that word. No. Okay. I'll have to look it up. Someone tell us, um. I still get overcome with emotion at certain times when I read something or when I see a performance. It's just like really devastating. And 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 really like celebrity deaths affecting people has never really been a part of my life. But you know, a couple of years before that, I'd seen him on Broadway playing Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. It was a life-changing thing to watch him do that. And he was my favorite actor at the time. He's still my favorite actor today. And him being ripped from the world was really devastating. But what about you? Where were you? Um, I was in Marion, Indiana in an AMC movie theater about to watch Nebraska. (laughs) And uh, you text me, Andrew, Phil is dead. (laughs) And I I start going on Twitter and seeing (sighs) stuff. And I I think this was, uh, oddly, I was seeing Nebraska a second time too, I think. (laughs) Wow. Um, and um, you know, I I have been not to like go on too much of a tangent, but I haven't seen that movie since. I don't think. But the the first time I watched it, it was the first time I cried at cinematography. <laughs> like there was just wow. this like black and white wide shot that I just I I don't know. It was just like this inexplainable thing wow. that um, rarely maybe has happened a couple times since. But um, I. I had an experience with that movie and wanted to go check it out again. And um, it was weird to, um, and it, it felt like to the kind of movie that Phil would give to the GoFundMe for, yeah. <laughs> you know, totally. Um, totally. So, so that was, that was cool. 
um, being in a movie yeah. theater, I guess, when I found out. Yeah, that is kind of cool. Better During than being previews. in a car on Federal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, get, back getting back to the yeah, back to the performance. The the thing the thing that I thought, um, because it, it's funny that you, you, this is where it's like our our personalities, uh, our our personalities, that go have a fork in the road. We're like. One fork is like, look at this man trying to work a room I despise. And that's the Andrew fork. And the Tim fork is, how do I become the man in this room who's working the room? <laughs> that's funny. But, well, I mean, that's that's the beauty of this movie is it's maybe my seventh or eighth time watching it or something. And yeah. that was what I noticed this time. You know, yeah. like, this movie yeah. is how um, many... Christians interpret the Bible as a living document. I actually yeah. experienced that with this movie where I, where I come back to it and feel like I've never seen that shot before in my whole life. And like, where yeah. was that? It's, it's this very hypnotic hallucinogenic sort of um, movie that, Oh, I don't like that's, yeah, that's the sentence. <laughs> yeah, every, every viewing, every viewing is a different experience. That's, yeah. that's why it's at the top of my list. Yep. You know, there's, there's a lot of movies that I would, I would like rather be entertained by. Well, maybe not anymore. Cause now I just find it so funny and just so enthralling that it's like world-class entertainment. Most, yeah. It, it is world-class entertainment, but not many people think that. And, and especially in a first viewing, it is an extremely disorienting and bizarre movie. Um, now and unsettling. Like it's, it's very, very unsettling. unsettling. Yeah. It's disturbing. Now it's like baked into my flesh in a way that I'm just like, I, I, this movie is so funny to me. And so it, well, yeah, it's like impacted both of our senses of humor, probably. Oh, in a very general sense. Completely. <laughs> um, and so for better or for worse, but, but like for, in, in terms of like, Oh, that's a great movie that you could just like put on anytime. Um, I, I'm at that level now because of how I feel because of my relationship and history with the film. But for most people, this would not be that type of movie. You know, it's just, it's too weird. It's too bizarre. But to me, when something can be that way and offer a different experience, a different idea, um, a, a new meaning every time you watch it, that that a movie like that goes to the top of my list because that's my, my sort of my sort of the way I grade movies now is and and we've talked about this before. But it's like okay, I watched that movie and I wish I never saw it. I want the time back is is category one category two is i watched that movie uh, i don't regret it i'm glad i watched it but i don't really have a desire to watch it again bye <laughs> goodbye and there could be some great movies in that category i just don't want to watch them again like it's it's like i got everything from them that i could get and then category three is i just watched that movie and i want to watch it again tomorrow there's just I I need to suck the the marrow out of the bone. I need to feast on every part of this. I need to dissect it and live it. And this movie totally lives in that for me. And so the the, the Phil performance though, I I watch it and I'm like, oh, we we all we love having a captive audience. I love having a captive audience. We we love we want to be a leader of men. <laughs> We want to, we want to lead people. We want to, we want people to follow us and we want to inspire people. You know, that's like the one part of it. And then the other part of it, which I think really gets into the meaning of the film is we like, we love and hate ourselves. 
you know, like we, we take pride in this identity that we've created, which the master does, you know, obviously he's got this, like, you know, going back to the dragon speech and he's got this, I've created something. I have found a way I am accessing all of human history. I am solving trauma. I am healing certain forms of leukemia because of the work I'm doing. Like there's such pride in this identity. Simultaneously, he is obsessed with Freddie Quell, who is his exact opposite in desire and temperament. And so it's like, the, I, I think all of us have that though. Like in this movie, it's it's very bizarre and feels very strange to witness. There, there's this pulsing opposite energy, which is, which is what makes the movie work. You know, what makes the movie work to me is Freddie Quell is, you know, Dionysus on the outside, wild, full energy, lustful, going after every passing desire. But internally, he is craving structure. He's craving a master. He's craving someone to tell him what to do. He's craving someone to fix him. Shelter, yeah. Lancaster Dot is the exact opposite. Externally, he's Apollo. It's structure, it's clarity, it's rules, it's guidelines. Internally, he has this burning desire to be wild, to let himself go, to tame the beast. Yeah, the, the way he whispers, like, when, when can we make more of your potion? Like, at the, oh, yeah. at the wedding, oh, yeah. you know, it's like he's speaking to Freddy in that moment, unlike any way he speaks to anyone else at any point in the movie and probably yep. his life if he was real. <laughs> yep. It's just like Freddy accesses up. Freddie gives him a place to be a different side of himself. Someone exactly. that wants to wrestle on the grass. And yep. um, I think that I'll, I'll, there's a, like multiple opposites happening. You know, it's not, not just like one straight line. Yeah. Um, I think the, um, the movie's odd and perplexing, partially because um, – the character Lancaster and Phil's performance are so um, powerful, you know, magnetic, commanding attention. But the movie, for the majority of the scenes, is ultimately hijacked by Freddie's perspective, Freddie's desires. You know, like um, when I'm watching Freddie laugh at the dragon story, like kind of drunk. I'm yeah. there with Freddie. Like it's taken me seven times to like actually listen to that story. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. there's all, there's all kinds of moments where like Freddie's not paying attention <laughs> and I'll, I'm there with Freddie, you know, yep. like I'm, yep. um, his perspective, you know, he is the protagonist ultimately. Totally. Yeah, there is also this other three ton presence Yes, next, next to him. And on the yep. other side of the room is him. And the, the it's really special when we get that, scene in the dark room before he's about to go out and like th these moments where we really get Lancaster's solitude and yep. um, sides of him that we're, we're normally with Freddie for um, yeah, the lonely at the top stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I, I mean, the era is perfect too for it's like Lancaster and everyone around him. Um, you know, they represent that fifties stereotype of, of structure and formality and, yep. um, and then Freddie gives it the, is the animal thrown into that, that cage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, oh, I, sorry. I have one last thought that doesn't yeah, have to ahead. do with, with any of this, but when you're <clears throat> naming your movie categories, I thought of 
category 1.5, which is between I'm not sure if I'm glad I saw this or not. Oh. And the only movies in that category are Eddie Redmayne movies. Lame <laughs> is Theory of Everything, Danish Girl. Danish Girl. <laughs> I, I, I walk into the movie theater parking lot and I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm glad I watched that. I know. Yeah. It was, a, um, it was okay. <laughs> it was good. It was okay. It's funny. Eddie Redmayne movies are a brand. At least those three are a yeah. brand. Yeah, that's yeah, a that's very true. A trilogy of slightly, slightly above mediocrity. Oh, <laughs> yep, yep. All right, on onward with the master. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you when you were talking, it was making me think about how Phil played so many supporting roles. You know, I think really he's known. I feel like he's best known as a fantastic supporting actor, if not the best supporting actor. Mm-hmm. This blurs that line. This blurs that line as a as a film, but it's also like just he. It, it goes back to that, like the roles he chose. You know, he chose. It's like there's no doubt that he could carry his own movie. You know, we watch him do it. He does it in he does it in Capote. He does it in Synecdoche, New York. He does it in A Most Wanted Man. I mean, there's multiple movies where he is the lead and he can very easily command the leading role. But mm-hmm. the lion's share of his work, I think, is these supporting roles. And at some point he became strategic in saying, I want to play this role. And I just so appreciate that he always went for the character and the role and the piece of work that interested him and not and and didn't go for the lead or like I could play, I could play Gus Gus in Charlie Wilson's war. Um, or I could take this other movie where they wrote the lead for me. It's like, no, mm-hmm. I'm going to do Charlie Wilson's war. And I, I mean, I, I don't know that that was the case, but just like this film, I think captures his ability to be a supporting actor who also has unbelievable influence on the film as a whole. And the film does that intentionally. And I think it's sort of the result of Paul writing Phil parts for all of these years. He like really tapped into this leading man energy, technically in a supporting role because mm-hmm. it is Freddie's movie. It is Freddie's story. And I just find that, I find that really fascinating, but yeah, just going back to like what it reveals about humanity working at those opposites. I think when all of us are honest we are Freddy or we are Lancaster or we're somewhere in between and we are at war with ourselves. And I think this movie is a, it's a two person description of the war that is going on inside ourselves, which is like true West. Yeah. <laughs> which we both true. love. Yeah. It's these, these polar opposites kind of merging and trying to become one. There's actually a great clip that I want to play right now uh, where Philip Seymour Hoffman did this talk about happiness with the philosopher Simon Critchley. It's a 45 minute interview on YouTube. There's a clip where Phil really breaks down the relationship and breaks down what he thinks the movie is about. And I want to play that right now and then we can talk about it. Well, you can do whatever you want with it, but it's just a relationship. And obviously these two men see something in each other that they can't understand why the other one has. And so they kind of, you know what I mean? When you find somebody, you're like, why do they have that? Why are they like that? 
-hmm. Why can't I be like that? Why am I that? And these two meet each other and they just like, like they just sniff the other person. It's like, I got, that's incredible. How, how do we just kind of become one person? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So we can be perfect. Or right. Whatever, you know. And I do think that that's obsession. And they know? roll on the floor they get that obsessed moment. with it. Yeah, yeah. they roll. That, that's what all that, that amazing stuff scene. is. Amazing scene. Which is, we, we never talked about any of this. I, what I'm saying, right, this is all just obviously in Paul allowing very deep, complicated questions to make, to, to make themselves known through strong narrative, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with a, with a very bright mind, you know, is that things will come out of that strong narrative that won't necessarily be named. So yeah, I lo I love how he he talks about this. You know, it's it's what we were just talking about. It's it's similar in in True West, which is a play that we love and a play that we did. But it's like these these two characters who find something in their opposite that is equally attractive and repulsive. It's like I want to become you, and I also want to destroy you. Mm -hmm. It's like that. This is why I love this movie. And and one of my questions that I want to talk about, like. You know, is this a great movie or is just Phil great in this movie? Which I think there's a lot of performances of his that probably were like astounding performances and in kind of mediocre or okay movies. To me, what makes this film great is that it is operating on that level of contradiction, deep, deep human contradiction that is within all of us at all times. It's operating at that level thematically, the characters, the the um the aesthetics you know just thinking about like freddy's booze like these these insane concoctions disgusting concoctions that could kill someone that he's creating but they're also delicious and make you feel amazing the film is operating at that level without ever telling us that it's operating at that level there's no there's no exposition these characters are never telling us what's going on and I just, I'm obsessed with that. I'm so fascinated by that yeah. in, a, in a film. We have to ask why. And it's like the the craft of the scene partnership between him and Joaquin. We won't see again in our lifetimes, probably. No. You know, like I, yeah. I, I just can't imagine. I cannot imagine seeing something like that again. Um, and I think I, I like half joked. It's not really a good joke or maybe it's, a good serious statement. I I don't know <laughs> when we were in the Netflix party thing last night was yeah. just that like, was Phil at the peak of his powers because it was the longest he was sober. Um, <laughs> yeah. A, 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 along with entering this age where a lot of people, a lot of artists do their, their best work like late thirties, mid or early forties, mid forties. Um, and not yep. everyone, you know, it's like you have, Jim Morrison or, or, or yep. Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix um, yep. getting all of their work done before 28 or, or you have Picasso still going into their, their late lateness. But um, right. I, I, I kind of really enjoy that, that patience and um, mastery that you see from someone like John Hamm finally landing the role, you know, in, in his forties yep. or late thirties um, or, yep. you know, when Rothko was doing his best work, um, Yep. And I think we don't, we'd be like remiss to like not talk about Joaquin for a second and how like he's got a lot of gas in the tank because he hasn't acted in four or five years, you know? So he's like yeah. ready to go. He is ready, yep. ready, ready to go. Ready yep. for so a little bit of, a little bit of that context 
Joaquin did that public stunt where he pretended that he retired from acting and was going to become a rapper and Casey Affleck filmed a documentary about it. And the whole thing was just a big joke. <laughs> just, yeah, just Google the, Joaquin the, Phoenix Letterman interviews and you'll see. The absurdity and hedonism of what happens in that documentary is like oddly, although disrespectful to society, the like perfect <laughs> warm up to play Freddie Quell. Oh, completely. <laughs> Completely. Um, yeah. So, it's, so 2012, this movie comes out. Joaquin had done this fake retirement thing and hadn't acted in a few years. And then he, he comes back to acting with this performance, which I still think is Joaquin's best. Absolutely. I, mean, I think it's Joaquin's best and I think it's Phil's best. And I think their chemistry together, it, it's just so magnetic and fascinating and alive. And the material again is working at this contradictory level and I could just watch it all day. I mean, l- let's talk about the jail scene just because we can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Your fear of capture and imprisonment is an implant from millions of years ago. This battle has been with you from before you know. This is not you. Shut the fuck up! It's not you. Shut the fuck up! It's not you. You are asleep. Your spirit was free. Moving from body to the next body. Free. Free for a moment. Then it was captured by an invader force bent on turning you to the darkest way. You've been implanted with a push-pull mechanism that keeps you fearful of authority and destructive. We are in the middle of a battle that's a trillion years in the making, and it's bigger than the both You're of us. You're making this shit up. You made this shit up. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. I give you facts. They don't give they me are not facts. facts. What facts? They are fucking facts. What facts? Fuck you. Fuck you! Why don't you kick the bag some more? Fuck you! Fuck you, you lazy-ass piece of shit! Fuck you, I'm not lazy! I'm done! You're fucking lazy! No, you made shit! You're fucking lazy! I made shit! Your family hates you! Your son hates you! Oh, they do! Who fucking likes you except for me? Nobody! Except for me! No, you don't fucking Who likes you except for me? Except for me! You shut up! I'm the only one who likes you! Fuck you, Jim! Fuck you! Just me, Freddy. Just you. I'm the only one that likes you. The only one. You're fucking drunk. And I'm done with you. Like, you you and I are literally, we're obsessed with the jail scene. We quote it all the time. We play it all the time. We quote it at each other. We scream it at each other. Like... (laughs) It, yeah. Why is that scene so good? Um, because it's funny. <laughs> it is so funny. Because it's really funny and it's really dramatic. And it looks like you could put that on a stage and the whole play happen too. Yeah. It like yeah, that first totally. wide shot of like the t- first two shot wide shot of them is like almost begging for that teleplay spinoff. Yep. <laughs> and yep. it's also like funny as a filmmaker to know the trivia that like Joaquin totally broke a historic toilet and they kept yes. rolling and like yep. 
people from that location totally started coming and then they got through the take and cut and they thank God were able to use that cut that take. And it's, uh, there's like funny backstory there. And, uh, yeah, they like got in trouble, right? Like the people were mad. Yeah. And it's, I guess like the writing and the acting and that scene too is like, we, we've had a pretty like well-mannered back and forth sort of formalistic screenplay up until this point. Yeah. And the the overlapping and chaos that erupts is yep. is really funny and and sort of uh, uh, takes off the mask from Lancaster Dodd, who's like playing the the peacemaker as he's getting arrested and yep. like being very calm in the police car. You know, it's it's a yep. bad afternoon. We'll be okay. Yep. But very worried about Freddie. That was something I noticed last night. He is so concerned about Freddie. Like, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Freddie, calm down. You know, like that, like concern for your child or your love being hurt uh-huh. is very much there. But, but yeah, then he gets in the jail cell and, and Lancaster just unleashes, you know, yeah. and f- no one, no one screams fuck like Phil. Like, no. no one screams it like him. No one says it like him. Like he is a master of using that word. And and he unleashes on Joaquin in this moment, and we finally get to we we get to see the two of them kind of like merging. You know, they talk about like trying to become one person, like for a second, across the jail cell. You know, both both trapped like animals, both start acting like animals at each other's throats, <laughs> and then it just like it calms down. I'm done with you. You know, it's uh. and he urinates, <laughs> which is the perfect act of animalia. Ah. Oh. Silly animal. Dirty animal. Your oh, fear of man. capture and imprisonment is an implant from millions of years ago. <laughs> Shut up! You're making this Oh man, it's just it's too good. That is a that is a favorite a favorite scene for sure. I mean, it's it's so climactic in a lot of ways because like this is the first time like Freddy has really defended Dodd up yes. to this point a lot. And yep. um from his own son's doubts, you know, but Freddie's finally unleashing his doubts to Lancaster. So that's climactic. Yeah. Your son I, hates you. You're making I think, this shit I think up. Lancaster, like half of his fear and reaction to Freddie going crazy against the cops and getting arrested is like, he kind of knew this would happen and he was dreading when would Freddie snap? When would I not be able to have control of this leash? You know, because yep. he, you know, he witnessed uh, Freddie breaking into or didn't witness but heard about freddie breaking into john moore's apartment and beating the shit out of him apparently yep. <laughs> and he, he knows this could happen and now yeah. now it's happened and he's been dragged into it too yeah. um, or, not, or not dragged into it because it's like it's he was the one who was right. <laughs> needed to get arrested but it says something about their camaraderie and partnership that really goes beyond Dodd and his wife that says that uh-huh. like he's the one who gets arrested with him at the end of the day when everyone else right. is still safe at Laura Dern's house. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still I swear though there's like a weird it's like he's he he's angry that this has happened and that he's got caught up with Freddie and Freddie's misbehaving. But it's like you said, it's like he knew this was gonna happen. So there's mm-hmm. a part of him that wants the chaos to be unleashed. He wants to he wants to like it's like Freddie's like an experiment and he, he keeps him in the lab because he's trying to figure out something about himself. Like Lancaster has pieces of himself that are unknown to him and Freddie comes in and helps reveal those pieces 
and and Amy Adams even even says that at some point where he's writing again. You've inspired something in him. You know, there's this like fatal attraction to from Lancaster to Freddie that he is trying to explore and pushing the limits in order to force it to present itself. And I think that that it's sort sort of what starts happening in the jail scene. But ultimately, he reverts he reverts back to you are an animal. I am the master. You're acting like a child. You know, this is implanted trillion of trillions of years ago or whatever. And, and like desperately tries to hold on to his authority and his status as, as the leader and as the person who holds the truth rather than leaning into the, what do I love about this chaos? Which is what all of us do. You know, it's like we revert back to our, we play with fire. We play with the thing that is opposite us. We're fascinated by it. And then oftentimes when we're confronted by another person in the midst of it, we revert back to quote who we really are. Mm-hmm. But it's like, who, who even are we? You know, we're, we're like, and I think that's why I love this movie because it, it kind of just like, um, it opens up. Oh, this is, this is so weird, but I, I've been rewatching lost. Uh, stay with me, everybody. Stay with me. And there's this there's this part where where um, Jack, the spinal surgeon, Jack Shepard, is talking about doing a, a surgery, and he accidentally hits a part of the spine, and these nerves spill out um, like spaghetti. You know, and it's just like such a visceral image in my mind, and that's that's how I feel like this movie is with the human psyche. It like it go it opens it up. And rather than looking at the spine and like cleaning it up and doing the thing that needs to be done, it like pokes it and all the nerves spill out and we get to see the mess of the contradictory human psyche on display at a character level, at a thematic level. Um, and, I, and I love that. You know, one, one of my questions to talk about throughout this podcast is, you know, is this a great movie or is just feel great? And I think, I mean, I think both of us think this is a great great movie yes i mean we're to an idiotic level biased in favor of it (laughs) yes Um, big time something that came to mind is that um lancaster dodd's super objective is not to sell a hundred thousand copies of the split saber it's to cure freddy you know like that is his character goal really yep throughout the movie and yep um and and peggy is like saying he's she says multiple times he's beyond help he's insane you know like we can't yeah but he partially because of how he views his his self lancaster and his own own power philosophy and religion that he's built it's like if he can't cure freddie then like that mean that's like just the the biggest failure to him because he he has to know that his thing works for everyone yep and and that's why he has freddie keep on Yep. Walking from the window to the wall, <laughs> and yep. uh, it, 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 yeah, part of his obsession with Freddie is like is tied with his ambition and desire for success. <laughs> yeah, and well, I, and I think this is where the the movie. I love how the movie has critiques of religion, but it's not a movie about religious critique. You know, P- Paul's P- Paul's not out there being like look at how religions can manipulate people and try to do things that they shouldn't do. And you know, they're bad. And that's the point of this movie. It more just exposes the, 
danger that can happen when someone is like Moses, hundred percent certain that what they are doing, believing, propagating, and preaching is correct. No, but there's a thing. He's not a hundred percent certain. You, you see it in that dark room. Yeah, that that's speech, true. You know, and I, to me, that's but like, he's paid to project certainty, and that's the danger. Exactly, right? exactly. And um, to to me, uh, one of the reasons this movie feels unique of many is that it taps into the the pain and triumph and desperation and failure of trying to convince others of your truth. Um, and as people who uh, it, 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 marketing what you need to do for your your business, your livelihood is different than marketing your art <laughs> or yeah. trying to convince because your your art is your truth, you know. And like yeah. the, the way I feel this this utter vanity about um, you know posting to like go watch my feature film or go listen to my music or whatever it, it yeah. feels like the most ultimate just like rolling the boulder up the hill and i don't know it's the top of the hill it might just be a steeper incline that ultimately rolls back <laughs> and oh. makes me go back down the hill you know there's just like such um yeah just like underlying sadness to groups of 20 and 30 in this warehouse in Phoenix, whatever this recreational center is, you know, it's not, uh, it's not the New York jets stadium or whatever, you know, it's like, it's it's, not that great. (laughs) Yeah. The, 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 just the pain of small entity, (laughs) you know, that we're all too familiar with. Is uh, like, I was gonna say it, that's our lives. <laughs> is, is is expressed in yeah in Lancaster, I think, and, and yeah. Phil does that in a way that no one else could. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree, and I and I think following up that scene, you know, we already talked about the Laura Laura Dern scene, where it's what do you want, you know, and as we were watching last night, it struck me that it, that scene, which is thirty seconds, forty seconds, not very long, you know. Actors are always talking about like, you can only do one thing. You can only do one thing at a time. And it's one thing at a time and one choice at a time, beat by beat. In that stretch of time, Phil, you know, he's sitting there in a certain mood. And it's like, it's it's almost like it kind of connects back to the dark room where there's some doubt, there's some fear, there's some exhaustion. And Laura Dern's character comes up to him and it starts questioning him. And he's like, yes, yes. Um, and then somehow like she, she pushes a little too far and he explodes and he screams, what do you, but on the want, he like comes down a little bit. It's like, he catches himself exploding in the middle or like at the back 10% of the line. (laughs) What do you want? And he like pulls back and recedes and, and the whole room feels it. They know not to look. The whole room feels it, but then he switches back again and was like, I shouldn't have done that. I feel guilty. And it's like this in a span the, of 30 seconds. Yeah, this is the new work. In a span of that short amount of time, he does like five, six different things. He makes all those different choices. And, and I feel like that moment so accurately captures the in- intricacy and specificity that Phil would bring 
to all of his roles, but, but this role being a supporting character, but still being so multifaceted, mm-hmm. I'm just like in awe of it. I'm so inspired by it and and interested in it. The when we first meet Lancaster Dodd and his crew and family and followers, it seems like they're at the top of their game. Yeah, you know, like they, yep, uh, just you know, just new locales and new work and new money and new opportunities ahead. And the the movie captures this uh, gradual like. Uh, slip slipping into doubt, you know, at, from not just him, but potentially others, you know, like yep. Laura Dern's character. Um, yep. And His son. just just now, I'm on, I'm wondering for the first time if like Freddie's presence ultimately perverted some sort of purity of process that Lancaster was engaged in before his arrival, and it's like Freddie inspired him to write things, or or made him soften up in a way yeah. that would make him more accessible. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I just think Freddie's presence potentially does something bad to the movement, but beyond just a drunk presence. (laughs) Yes. No, there's a, there's a disruption there that, yeah, doesn't just operate on a physical level, but on a metaphysical level where Mm -hmm. it's like the existence of this person is, is a counterpoint to my philosophy religion, cult, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably part of, part of Dodd's desire to fix him or change him is, and, and I guess we already talked about this, but like I, in order to prove what I'm doing is right, I have to convert this person Mm -hmm. because if I can convert him, I can convert anyone. And it like proves the veracity of the cause. Mm -hmm. So what about the their last scene together which i which we'll, we'll let's let's well first of all let's just play a, a quick clip from that last scene free winds and no tyranny for you freddy sailor of the seas you pay no rent free to go where you please Then go. Go to that landless latitude. And good luck. For if you figure a way to live without serving a master, any master, then let the rest of us know, will you? you be the first person in the history of the world. So this last scene, this last meeting between Freddie Quell, Lancaster Dodd, it's after Freddie has defected and left. And he has this dream vision when he's in a movie theater, which is fun, that Lancaster has called him and told him to come to London, which apparently never actually happened. Freddie just imagined it. But there were parts of it that did connect because on the phone, Lancaster says, I went back and I found out where we met. And then when they meet, he confirms, I went back and found out where we met and tells this, you know, absurd pigeon post story. Um, The thing I was thinking when we watched it last night, is this scene the climax? Um, 
Because like, if it's not this scene, what is the climax technically? And I know structurally, I feel like structurally, initially, this movie made no sense to me. And I was like, there is no plot. But as I've watched it more, there is very clearly, pl- not clearly, there is plot in this movie. There is like a yeah. five-act structure to this film. And Yeah, I think it's that scene. Yeah, yeah and it feels like else? this scene is the irreversible... It's the divorce papers. Of the protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is the divorce papers. Um, I also feel like it's weirdly the one the one line in the film, you know, if you figure out a way to live without a master, serving a master, any master, then let the rest of us know, will you for be the first in the history of the world? It's like the first time the film try like a little bit says what it's about, which is interesting, but it does it just doesn't feel like it's trying to say what it's about. I don't know. What are your takeaways from that last? That's scene what that's together? what the movie is about to Lancaster Dodd, but the movie can be about anything else to anyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. That's funny. I think it's funny and worth noting that Peggy is there when he first walks in. She and is. Is it like the f- the first thing she says to him is, "Are you drunk?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the first thing she says, yeah. and it's just yeah, like he. Right. She, she has been so done with him for so long and oh, yeah. is still so done with him. And Lancaster has, um, for, for the greater good, let time be his teacher of he needs to be done with Freddie as well, ultimately. But still hanging on to hope that maybe there's a path for Freddie to be the janitor yeah. here or something. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> I could take pictures. Or the, the yearbook photographer. <laughs> yes, the media uh, company. But it's yeah, it's interesting that uh uh Yeah, it, it's weird. It's like can they ever really forget about each other, put this couple year episode, however long it was, behind them? Um, you know, it feels like that college best friend thing that's just like hard to yeah. Even if you started to hate them towards the end, could you ever really fully distance yourself? But yeah. but the way Phil so sincerely delivers that, like, I never want to see you again. Oh, yeah. Um, if, if you don't make the decision to stay here now. If you leave here, I don't ever want to see you again. Or you can stay. Maybe in the next life. If we meet again in the next life, you will be my sworn enemy and I will show you no mercy. Like there, there's just something really uh, uh, lovey-dovey, a, romantic, yeah. gruesome about it. Yeah. It, like, I, I had the thought. so much love and hate <laughs> happening in There's that like romantic comedy vibes in this movie sometimes. Yes. You know, yep. and then, you know, it ends, it doesn't end like a rom-com does, obviously, but there is this, this romance going on between these two characters. And, and yeah, he's like, just, just where he's, if you leave here, I don't ever want to see you again. Like when he says that line, you completely believe him. And then somehow in the next line, or you can stay, you again, <laughs> completely believe him. Yeah. Like two sentences he he crafts together opposite objectives and delivers yeah. both of them so sincerely. It's just like, 
oh gosh yeah d- despite his like manipulation and blind egoism and uh amongst other things there is like a pretty thick slice of cake of lancaster dodd that is altruistically graceful forgiving hopeful yeah. you know for freddy for yep. humanity i'm sure for a lot of other people too and he yeah. he 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 really tries to be a um you know despite the controllingness like a peacemaker and someone who is well-tempered even though that and you know maybe trying too hard to be that way sometimes sometimes right. you slip <laughs> which we yeah. see um mm-hmm. putting too tight of a bottle cap on yourself but um well there i mean this film could be talked about endlessly I know there are aspects that, you know, we didn't talk through supporting characters. We didn't get into the religious stuff that much. I, there's so much that we could talk about. Um, we mainly focused on Phil's performance, which is what this podcast will do. But I do have a couple just sort of ending questions for you, Andrew. And, you mm-hmm. know, when we, when we have you on again, we won't go through these again. But for this, for this first one, um, what, what, is your, what is your favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman movie and why? Um, it's this one because, um, yeah, it's a very good movie. It's a very good Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And it's also, um, see, I think Joaquin Phoenix is actually my favorite film actor right now. Same film actors. If like, I know anything about theater actors, but (laughs) it's just this weird thing to like assume that celebrities equal the best actors in the world, you know? So it's just like, it feels like a limit, a limited, assertion sure. like, that's my favorite actor it's like well that's you know, my next question is who's your favorite actor and we, why we we know 0.0001 of the people who want to be actors there are so many terrible people yeah. who want to be actors yes in, very true. in this world um and i'll and not just as many but there's a lot of great human beings and great actors who deserve to have roles in movies like this that we know yeah. <laughs> yep. that don't um yeah but yeah like phil to me is not that mourn his death for six years and still not be over it like it is for tim um <laughs> he, I, I think he's so awesome but th- that would be um it, it, it wouldn't be as tragic because they're older but like i you know will really be upset when brian wilson dies when paul mccartney dies um yeah some of those musicians i, I, I don't really have that relationship to any actors i don't think but um, if Paul tragically died, you know, in the next 10 years yeah. or 20 years, like that'll be, that'll be rough. Um, yeah. Sam Shepard's death hurt a bit. It was, mm. He was 72, which was kind of weird. Like it felt like he's gone a little too soon, but yeah. it was probably for the best that he didn't just get coronavirus three years later anyway. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, you know, he would have gotten coronavirus if he, oh, uh, yeah. If he survived, he would he would be <laughs> opening new bars in Kentucky during yep. the lockdown. Yeah, um, yep. but he really would. Anyway, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is my favorite film movie for sure. Um, be, because say, it's yeah. just so good. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to yeah. say about it. You know, we we we. I think we've explained why it's so. Yeah, good we've explained to this why. point. Yeah. It's it's. It's a pair of perfect performances, in my opinion. I mean, I think Amy Adams is also great. She's just on screen so much less of the time that I think Amy Adams has better 
roles in other movies, but like for really, these really quick, two, which ones for people who like her and want to watch more of her? I mean, I think honestly, I think she's great in Arrival. It's sort of an understated, mm-hmm. yeah, role. She is but like, that. I love that movie, and she is so accessible. Like, I just, I believe every, I believe her every second of that film, and I, and I mm-hmm. love that movie. Um, but I think also like she's her more charactery stuff, you know, like American Hustle, <clears throat> which I don't love that movie, but I feel like her character work in that is is really great. That movie was made. Someone got the idea for that movie because they saw the costumes in a high school theater department, and then they stole those costumes and used those in the movie, and then wrote a bad screenplay to go with it. Uh, so true, so true. Sorry. Um, no, you're good. No, you're good. I, I I really like Amy Adams in this movie, and I think I think my first couple of viewings when people were like really excited about her work in this, I was like, yeah, she was good. I'm not like crazy about it, but. Right. Um, I, I, on this last one, this last viewing, I turned another notch of like, wow, like I really, really like what she's doing in this movie. Like she, oh, she's great. She, she's bringing a lot of different dimensions and sides of Peggy. Yeah. And we get a different side of that in each scene, whether it's yeah. like this kind um, questioning and wisdom at like the dinner table or yeah. this like really fierce anger at the critics and their room you know like Uh uh, or this sort of pleasantness when she's getting to know freddie at that ship buffet you know like she she, just the power you know the the jerk off scene in the sink yes i mean she's just like yeah she wields a power yeah but yeah it is it is multifaceted which is why i think she got nominations as well for this yeah 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 but i still stand by for Joaquin and Phil, it is a pair. Yes. It's a, it's a chemistry. It's a pair of performances. It's a it's a pair of performances in each of their career that I think is just peak of their powers. You know, and, and mm-hmm. Joaquin's done amazing work since then, and he'll continue to do amazing work because he's a fantastic actor. But seeing those two go at it, I just feel like blessed, for lack of a better term. To yeah, have it no, in my we're, time. we should... I'm grateful that this movie exists. It This yeah. movie has influenced me more as a filmmaker than any other movie by far. Yeah. Like from yeah. the aspect ratio that I always use now, from the fact that I use a 50 millimeter lens all of the time. They use a 50 millimeter for like a lot of close-ups in this movie. Yeah. Um, the kind of like weighty seriousness of a lot of tripod shots and what that can mean. And just like this, uh, yeah, I mean like that aspect ratio, just that, that size of canvas I fell in love with because of this movie. And, um, I think it, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just really important and special to me personally. It's what, it's why we started with it. And there will be a lot, I I'm guessing there will be a lot of movies in this podcast that are not great, that, are not going to create as much fandom oh, yeah. um, and we'll, we'll go even deeper <laughs> into, into Phil and what was going on in his life and in his career. And, you know, some of those smaller roles in shitty movies, we will fill it out with more great Philip Seymour Hoffman content Ness Philip Seymour Hoffman Ness, um, because there's a lot of great interviews of him, a lot of great clips from multiple movies, but I think that that wraps it up for today. Uh, I do, just want to kind of do the the ending acknowledgements and remind everyone 
or tell everyone for the first time, really, that That's That is sponsored by One County Film, which is an independent film company that tells uh, stories with authentic characters and unique settings, which is co-owned and founded by Andrew and I. Uh, That's That is produced by me, Timothy Mark Davis, and edited by Ryan Arnst. Our show music was composed and edited by Jessica Ray Huber, and our graphic design was designed by Drew Hannigan. Uh, You can connect with One County Film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One County Film. You can connect with me on Twitter at Timothy Mark Dave, D-A-V, because Davis is too long. So Timothy Mark D-A-V and Instagram at Timothy Mark Davis. Andrew, where can the people find you online? Um, on Instagram, my username is Andrew Paul Davis. If you like my optimistic side and if you want my side that's angry at the government all the time, you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Davis Film. Andrew Davis Film. Love it. So thank you, everyone, for listening to That's That. We will see you next week with a new guest where we dive into the 1994 film The Yearling, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. The Yearling is directed by Rod Hardy, and according to the Amazon Prime logline, it is based on Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings' Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. In 1870s Florida, lonely 12-year-old Jody convinces his parents to let him have a pet fawn. Jody forms a loving bond with the animal and must choose between familial duty and his love for the pet after the fawn starts eating the struggling family's crops. So, I've never seen this movie. Philip Seymour Hoffman apparently plays some role in this movie uh, earlier in his career, hopefully rather villainous, but we'll be back next week. The Yearling streaming on Amazon Prime. Join us for that. So, Andrew, before we go, I just want you to say, um, that's that mattress, man. That's that. Oh, you you want me to say that's that mattress man? <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's right. Here, here it's the first time. It's the first time we're doing this. That's that is a line from Punch Drunk Love. Where I'm doing really bad at providing context, but I would like us to <laughs> sign off with you saying, "That's that mattress man." Say that's that mattress man. Mm-hmm.